stand with me for the reading of Scripture. We're going to be reading out of Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9. It says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kim. Well, good morning, everybody. We only have two more weeks here in the book of Philippians. Good to see everybody. Beautiful summer here in San Diego. My name's Dan. My wife and I are kind of matching this morning. We coordinated this morning our colors. Yeah. Practicing power couple stuff, I don't know. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, let's pray. Strange days, Father, we find ourselves in, but for such a time as this, you have called the Christian community to be a non-anxious presence. You, Father, have brought these here this morning to strengthen them. The book of Philippians, this handbook on human flourishing, training us to be a people of peace, a people of pure joy, a people of holiness, a people of happiness, not because of our circumstances. Our circumstances in many ways are terrifying, but because our eternal circumstances are secure in Jesus Bless now this time, Father, give to each of these souls a word of encouragement, a word of strength, a word to the wary, a word of conviction and comfort, correction. Draw us, Lord, unto yourself. We seek your face in every way, and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys know I love to do this stuff. Let's start off with a little bit of brain stuff this morning. Maybe just one or two of you, if you feel bold enough, can you tell me what you see in that image? What does it look like to you? Anybody? A bat, okay, we have a bat, a moth, a beetle, bats, moths, beetles, so, so far animals. Does anybody see like a demon? I saw somebody making crab hands. Okay, so everybody recognizes that that is really nothing more than a random ink blot on a page, right? Okay, this is what has come to be called a Rorschach test image. The Rorschach inkblot test was developed in the early 20s, 1921 actually, by a Swiss psychiatrist named Hermann Rorschach. Now Rorschach actually started his career as a visual artist. He was your historical, what we would consider, uh, you know, a, a designer of sorts, digital designer of sorts, but in the 20s. And Rorschach grew in his fascination around how people observed imagery. He was fascinated by how the human mind approached imagery, interpreted imagery, and spoke about imagery that he created. So as Rorschach moved from the visual arts into the psychiatric world, he actually developed 15 more ink blots just like these. Some of them had color, some of them were just black and white, and he eventually published a book of 10 of these, which became a standardized test in the psychiatric world, because what Rorschach did was he began to catalog people's responses to his ink blots. He began to keep the details of hundreds and hundreds of people 
of how they would interpret the imagery that he had created. Now, despite popular opinion, Rorschach inkblots weren't random. He actually designed them to evoke specific types of images. Much of what you guys interpreted today was actually what he intended in this particular inkblot. So through a very detailed and complicated system, Rorschach observed and cataloged these patterns of perception and ways that people were observing and approaching his images, and then he put them into categories. Now, here's the deal. As the data began to pile up over the years, Rorschach began to recognize that people with different forms of mental illness, such as schizophrenia, would observe his images and approach his images very differently than people with quote-unquote normal minds. He began to observe patterns in the schizophrenic, in the depressed, in the bipolar, in the healthy, in the joy-filled, in the introvert, in the extrovert. He began to see that each of these personality types and mentally healthy and unhealthy would generally see and approach these images in similar fashions. To summarize, the state of the mind shaped the external interpretation of reality. Now, the Rorschach tests have gone on to become quite controversial in the psychiatric world. They are seeing somewhat of a resurgence and more clinical use in current day, but that's beside the point. My point that I wanted to make this morning with this was, if our minds are in right working order, then a general consensus will say, I see a bat, I see a moth, I see a beetle. If the mind is generally broken, and hopefully you're not schizophrenic here this morning, <laughs> the perceived reality is also broken. It's also broken. And so what we discover is that from the complex world of psychiatry to the colloquial kind of proverbial question of how you and I see the glass, is it half full or half empty, that says a lot about the way that we're going to be interpreting the world around us. So our deepest belief structures and our inner thought life right now, the way that you think inside of yourself, determines the way that you're going to think about your external world. In many ways, the age-old adage, it's all in your head, is actually a true statement. Now, we humans, we have inherently understood the influence of our thoughts and brains, and we have long tried to harness the power of our minds. Let me just give you a few examples from culture. Sports psychologists, they talk about this thing called flow state. It's a state in which your mind and body sort of connects and enters into this sort of autopilot perfection in whatever sport you are practicing or engaging in. And so modern elite athletes actually now are trained in meditation practices, breathing practices, visualization practices, trying to bring their minds prior to their activity into alignment, their minds with their physical activity. Top-level bodybuilders, for all you meatheads in here, they actually now emphasize the mind-muscle connection. It's not just grunting a bench press. It's about connecting the mind to the pec as you press that bench up. CEOs, Fortune 500 companies, they've recognized the impact of harnessing the mind. Mindfulness techniques across corporate America are being practiced in boardrooms all this week to enhance productivity. Cognitive behavioral therapies, positive psychology. These are tools that therapists are using for the mind to reinterpret external realities to transform behavior and heal traumas. There are even, to this day, fringe-type folk, I would consider them fringe, who think that telekinesis is real, being able to move stuff with your mind. There are those that believe we can use the force like Luke, or we could be like Eleven if we could just recapture our powers and toss helicopters about with 
our hands. You guys want to hear a funny story about my son? I asked if I could share this. This is awesome. When Joby was little, we would, we would always do these Star Wars marathons, and Joby would be sitting at the table at dinner, the five of us at dinner, and Joby, out of nowhere, when he wanted something from across the table to be handed to him, would stick out his hand and he would go, and he would hold his hand out, and the girls would roll their eyes, and Joby would just get louder and louder, until one of us got so annoyed, we'd hand him what he wanted. Telekinesis. It's real. To truly harness the mind, though, have you ever tried? It is so difficult. Try not right now to think of a pink elephant. The Buddhists actually describe the state of our inner thought world as the monkey mind, jumping from one thing to the next. And so Zen Buddhists will devote their entire life to detaching and learning to observe the antics of their brains rather than being controlled by them. Now, as we discussed last week and as we've discussed throughout the book of Philippians, Modern life exacerbates this frenetic, distracted pace of mind that we are all dealing with today. Technology and algorithms in those social media platforms are actually tapping into the most primal places in our brains and addicting us to highly emotional, highly volatile means of thinking. And we moderns never disconnect from taking in information and work. Unlike our brothers and sisters throughout history in agrarian societies, their rhythms were based around seasons and sunlight times. We never stop. We are always on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and I am utterly convinced this is a primary factor in the collective anxiety that many of us are dealing with. We have not disconnected. Christians through the centuries have recognized both the power and the necessity of harnessing the mind, though starting with Jesus. Jesus himself said to love God with all of our heart, strength, soul, and class, mind, our mind. Paul, in talking about the mind, actually used pretty aggressive language in other letters. He would say that we, the Christian, are to take captive every thought. And so Paul painted the picture of us being victorious soldiers in our brains, taking captive, renegade thoughts and directing them where we willed rather than we being directed by the will of the intrusive thought. Now, it's important that you note here, Paul did not mean by take captive, unlike the Buddhist, empty your mind and don't think. Paul did not mean take captive. He did not mean by take captive, you are to control and cease certain forms of thinking. You can't do that, pink elephant. You can't do it. Christian mystics and contemplatives for centuries now have all recognized the impossibility of quote-unquote ceasing thought, controlling our thoughts. We cannot stop the mind from wandering. We cannot stop the mind from fixating, from obsessing, from running, from misinterpreting. But, Christian, we are not victims of the mind because we can direct it. We can direct it. Don't think of a pink elephant. Think of Jesus on the cross. You just redirected your mind by your own volition, by your own will. The mind, 
Christian mystics and contemplatives, all the way back to Jesus, have always taught is like a muscle. The mind must be trained. The mind can be shaped and formed. In fact, modern neuroscience in the last few decades has proven a concept called neuroplasticity. We can literally, all the way into our age, into old age, we can continually be rewiring our brains by what we focus on. I like to think of my mind or our minds as like a fire hose. So there is always water constantly running through. The water never stops completely, but we can slow the water down, we can direct the water, and we can choose which water source we are attached to. Dirty, polluted water sources of the flesh, the world, and the devil, or the inner springs of the Holy Spirit, the water of God's word, and the refreshing counsel of the community of the church. Paul says, discern and ask yourself, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So for Paul, the way to battle in the brain was to be continually exercising that muscle, directing the focus and the flow. Said another way, rather than resisting thoughts as if we could stop them from happening, he counsels Christians to redirect them. No mature Christian would ever repudiate thinking altogether. Or say, just stop thinking those thoughts. We are not Buddhists trying to empty the mind. Rather, we are renewing our thought life by orienting our minds around the facts established by the reality of God. And it is a conscious, volitional choice that each of us has to make every breath we breathe. This is what one author called an arduous good. I'm hung up on this statement. Like climbing a mountain. You must train, you must be focused, you must have the right gear. It's an arduous good to train the mind to be continually redirecting the mind to that which is Scripture, Spirit, and the sweet counsel of the church. This is the big idea that we're exploring here this morning for the next 20 minutes. This is what Paul is getting at in the text that Kim read for us. He is admonishing the church in Philippi to think carefully, to consider, to discern as a Hebrew rabbi, he had in his mind the ancient Hebrew meditation, haga, chew on this, swallow it, and then chew on it some more, and think about it more, and come at it from this angle, and let your mind focus on it, and let the flow be directed from these sources of Scripture spirit and the counsel of the church. What Paul does here in our passage is he lists a set of virtues nine to ten of them, depending on how you read it out in the Greek. And he's saying these virtues for the Christian community, for us today in 2022, urbanites in San Diego, here's where we need to direct our focus. If we're going to be a people of peace, the hunger for happiness that we are all starved for, it starts here in the brain. Is the glass half empty or half full? What do you see on the Rorschach image? What's going on in your internal world that helps you to actually perceive reality out there? And so Paul lists these virtues, and there's a very important side note here for you culturally. Track with me. Please follow this. This is a really important point, and it's a little bit complex. Most scholars believe that Paul draws this list from ancient Greek virtue lists, the Stoics, the Esoterics, the, 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 the various philosophies that were floating about in, in Asia Minor. Paul draws from the world of Greek moral thought, character and virtue development thought, and then he plants it in a New Testament document, which we don't know if he knew he was writing a New Testament document, but we know now. He plants it in this New Testament document and conforms it to Christianity. 
He takes thoughts from the world, truths from the world, ideas from the world, and then he says, this is how this fits into a Christian perspective. Think on this. This is why this is important. Number one, minor point, this is important because a consistent bit of feedback that we get at Neighbors on our teachings and on our podcasts and on the, con- on the contemplates that we do on Wednesdays and on the conversations that my wife and I and other leaders and our staff have, we are always kind of mixing ideas. We, we love to dig into findings from modern psychology and sociology and psych- psychiatry. I'm a neuroscience kind of armchair. Of like, I just love that world. And 99% of our listeners, including most of you, I hope, are like, man, I love that. There's really a connection there between science and the spirit. That's absolutely incredible. For some folks, though, it feels like, hey, are you drifting from Scripture? Are you, are you, are you not making Scripture your center point? And to that, we just want to humbly respond that, indeed, The Bible, the scriptures are our final source of authority, no question. But God's work is echoing out in every discipline of the human experience. Sometimes these fields that we dabble in and read in, they are actually drawing from and confirming and discovering in new and fresh ways, empirical ways, what the spirit and the scriptures are doing in the soul. And so we delve into that. We think about that. We see how that correlates. We see how that plays out. Now, of course, secular psychology and psychiatry and neuroscience would never recognize that what they're discovering are the works of the Spirit through the Scriptures in salvation. They would never recognize that nor declare that. But we, the Christian, we've got a little bit of insight there. We're able to see that and draw from that. Now, here's the second reason why this is important. This is a beautiful bridge into our neighbors and into our professors and into our friends and family members who are struggling with the idea of Spirit and scripture. We draw these ideas and meditate on these things because we cannot forget that every good, right, beautiful, and true thing that is done in this world has Jesus at the center. If Paul says that in Colossians, all things were created for Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, this means that anything that is good, true, right, and beautiful in the world has Jesus at the center of it. So the world's impulse The world's impulse towards equality, that is an impulse of Jesus. Does everybody recognize that? Right now, the culture's impulse towards self-expression and individuation. Did you guys know that at the very foundation of that is actually Jesus' desire for us to lose our false self and know ourself is loved by him? The cry to protect the vulnerable, whoever you consider the vulnerable in the world that you're living in, the woman, the baby, the the black community, all of the, the spaces where there has been injustice, where there has been terrible, terrible brokenness, the cry for equality, the cry for protection, the cry for justice, this is the cry of Jesus. And so every true and pure and lovely thing in the world has at its core the moral impulses and the moral will of Jesus himself. Now, the world, of course, doesn't know that. And then what sin does is it takes those moral impulses and it twists it. What is true and admirable, it deforms it into something wrong. The world wants to go about doing the will of Jesus because it is right and true and beautiful, but it wants to do it without Jesus or in Jesus's way. As Mark Sayers says, humanity wants the kingdom just without the king. But there's a bridge here. With every friend, every coworker, every professor, every neighbor, this impulse towards fidelity, this impulse towards equality, this impulse towards justice, this impulse towards protection of the vulnerable. Did you know that that is the very heart of Jesus, my dear friend, my dear neighbor? And did you know that you could strive in every way to accomplish this in your own strength and it will fail? This is why Jesus had to die. 
You see, there's a cultural bridge here. There's an interface between our friends and our family members. Guys, Christianity is, is obscure and strange and marginalized when people are doing kingdom work without the king. But then when we come in and we say, we want to do kingdom work with the king, there's an attractiveness to that. Did all that make sense? Let's move on. A big dig into each of these virtues. Just briefly, let's, let's walk through these virtues and then we'll wrap up and take communion this morning. Number one, Paul says, what should you guys be thinking about this week? What should we be meditating on? What should frame our minds? What is true? What is true? Aletheia is the Greek word here. One of the cracks in the foundation of our society that's just creating a grand canyon chasm collapse of society is the loss of truth. Starting with objective truth that is unchanging and outside of ourselves. Postmodern thinking has created this notion that truth is merely what we perceive in our personal, experiential, subjective selves. What I feel to be true is what's most true. And so that means, for the postmodern mind, there is nothing that is true outside of ourselves that exists whether we believe it or not. Now, of course, we all believe that when the sun goes down and comes back up, that the sun is still there. We believe that physically. I'm speaking in transcendent and moral, metaphysical terms here. The postmodern mind says, you can't know those things. Everything truth about those things is subjective. There's no objective moral reality. There's no objective God out there who, to whom I owe allegiance, who has authority over all of creation. Now, friends, this thinking, as a good pastor, I want to shepherd you in this way because I am tempted by this thinking all the time. This thinking has infiltrated the psyche of God's people in the church. Christianity and its truth, objective truth, has slowly shifted from the objective realities and truth claims that there is a God, that God became a human, that Jesus died and literally rose from the grave. The truth claim of Christianity is that every human owes their absolute allegiance to Jesus as their creator and king. But now, postmodern thought, there is no objective realities out there with which I must wrestle, has been infiltrating and kind of tainting the psyche of the church to where now Christianity is no longer to be based on the veracity of those truth claims. It's to be based on, does it feel right to me? Does it make sense to the way that I see the world should be ordered? This is why I encourage you, my dear sister, my dear brother, in the throes of doubt, and I want you to just, whoever you are, I am with you. In the throes of deconstruction, I want to invite you. Take it to bedrock. Church, stop playing games with deconstruction. If you're going to deconstruct, you need to take it to bedrock. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If he did, then everything else changes Everything else changes. We can have our feelings, our doubts, our insecurities, our uncertainties, our frailties, our injustices, our church wounds, our pain. We can have all of that. But if Jesus rose from the dead, that is bedrock. That is the foundation from which we work. It is an external, unchanging truth that changes every single thing about it. And once you reach that bedrock, then you can begin to interpret church wounds and pain and injustices and failures. And you're, even your own subjective, like my subjective carnival that is my emotional makeup, has to be observed and filtered through the resurrection of Jesus. And at this point in my life, I have no other option. I have no other rational place for me to go than to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Please, friend, 
Let's get coffee. Let's talk more deeply about de deconstructing to bedrock and stop flirting around with all of our feelings and all the things that we're pointing the finger at. Let's get to the guts of Christianity, this objective truth. There is a God. God became a man. God died for you. God rose in Jesus Christ. God is ruling and reigning in Jesus, establishing his kingdom until he literally comes again. When we meditate on that kind of truth, when we start at ground zero, it changes the realities around us. And so you and I this week need to think longer and more deeply about who God is, that he exists, who he claims to be, what he's done in biblical and literal history. We need to, this week, direct our minds in traffic, in times of alone, in times of conversation, to think about the resurrection, the nature of sin, the need for forgiveness. We need to think about the deep, eternal, objective, true claims of Christianity, that there is an eternal life after this, in which there is reward and perfect equanimity and justice finally done in all of creation. It will shape if you will come to believe these things more deeply, having wrestled with and answered and asked all the questions, God will supply the answers that he knows you need to the degree that will bring you closer to him to objectively observe your realities. Number two, noble. Much less, less time on these back ones. Paul says, meditate on what is noble. What is noble? This is the Greek word semnates, and it pointed to Meditate on that which garners respect, that which is dignified, that which is reverent. Whenever I think about nobility for myself, I think about aristocrats. Uh, I think about like Queen Elizabeth. We were in London and it was the Jubilee and everybody's wearing funny hats and just so excited about Queen Elizabeth's 70th year's reign. I was like, who cares? What is the big deal about this? Or I think about uh, nobility. I think about... Um, uh, oh, what is that sedative show that we always watch? Downton Abbey. Every time Downton Abbey comes on, I'm like, <clears throat> just, it's like a sedative to me. I don't know why. And so whenever we think about, whenever we think about nobility, I think as Westerners, because we don't have any framework for, for revering or respecting authority, we, we just dismantle authority. We fear and criticize authority. The idea of respecting authority is just ridiculous to us. And that's partly because our politicians and our celebrity-driven fame culture has truly decimated the eye of nobility. That is not what Paul is saying meditate on this week. We're not meditating on kings and queens. We're not meditating on Downton Abbey. We are meditating on what is truly noble. Think of it this way. This week, when you're thinking through and letting your mind wander about humanity, think about the noble ones, first responders, single moms working two jobs for the sake of their kids, Think about them. Think about them. Think about the missionary somewhere in India right now digging a ditch for the orphanage. Nobody's ever going to know his name. Think about the pastor imprisoned in North Korea. He's sharing from memorized snippets of the book of Ephesians trying not to get caught. Think about this week when you're stuck in traffic, the women that are going out in full head covering in Iran at risk to their lives to share the gospel. This is noble. This is true nobility. And friends, if you will think about these things, it will change the way that you're looking at humans. You'll suddenly begin to think of, with still respect for an image bearer, but you'll think of kings and queens as kind of silly. <laughs> you'll think of fame and celebrity as, that's kind of a silly thing for me to be pursuing. When my father sees the woman in Iran and the ditch digger and the Korean pastor and the single mom changing a diaper at 3 a.m. and says, that's noble. Think about these things. Truth, nobility, and then justice or righteousness. 
third, he says, think about righteousness. Paul says, think often about what brings equality and rightness between humans. But also this week, think about what brings rightness between humans and God. What fulfills all of humanity's obligations to God and to others and to themselves? And so going back to that comment that the echoes of God are in all the movements of humans at at their root, at their foundation, this is why we as Christians, we don't flee or politicize the talking points of our cultural moment. We as Christians of all people should be asking ourselves, how do we care for the environment? That's an important question. How do we bring righteousness and justice to the environment around us? How How do we help the woman and how do we help the baby? How do we do this in these culturally narrative, in these cultural moments that are happening around us? How do we think about these things bringing righteousness before God and righteousness and justice between humanity? We have to ask ourselves honestly, why is the church the most racially divided place in Western society? That is a, that is a pockmark on who Jesus is. And so when we meditate on these things, they're the talking points of cultural points, There are kingdom impulses within this social moment of people trying to do the king's ways without the king. And here we are as the church, and it is our mandate, it is mandated upon us to say, here's how you do this. Submission to the king, humility, listening, gentleness, kindness, respect. And so for every exposure to injustice that all of us will just be fire-hosed with this week via our news feeds, via our social medias, The Christian takes a moment to lament those injustices, to lament that inequality, to lament that suffering, and then the Christian focuses their mind on what does the kingdom of God through me in this moment look like? And it just begins with honest prayer, and then it begins with activity out of that. Number three or four, I don't know where we are. Pure, purity. This word, Paul says, think about what's pure. This verb was originally meant to stand in awe of something, something that was holy, something that sometimes was attributed to deity. And so it was, in, it was employed in the sense of like a moral sense of holiness or purity. And in our culture, this really plays in most poignantly around sexuality. How do we think purely in an over-sexualized culture? And this is very, very difficult. Just the other day, my wife and I were going for a little beach break. I was going to get some waves, and she was going to get some sun, and we're driving down to PB, and just, you know, sitting next to me, she just kind of gives a groan, and she's like, we just, we cannot go anywhere without just being exposed to over-sexualized image, imagery constantly. We live in the most over-sexualized society that has ever existed on the planet, We are robbing ourselves of a sense of dignity and purity in the name of liberty and freedom. And as Christians, you and I cannot escape it. We cannot escape the porn. We cannot escape the over-sexualized imagery. We cannot escape the narratives, the sexual image, the sexual narratives that are driving our culture right now. But we don't have to focus and fixate on these things. We actually are allowed to direct our brains, and Jesus would even say, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. An arduous good, a strenuous training of the muscle, to train the muscle of the wandering eye to stay focused on your wife, or if you're single, to stay focused on Jesus. There's a real training that happens here, and I want to be careful how I say this, but church, we need to be careful about the movies and the images and the music that we are bringing into our brains on a constant overflow. Now, let me caveat this. I love cinema. I love music. 
In fact, I'm an old school metalhead, like hardcore metalhead. And so, for example, whenever I go out in my garage to do a CrossFit workout, I will go out there and I usually start with worship while I'm doing my warm up. I'm getting all, got some Bethel, got some Maverick City, and praise God. I get my lifting in, I usually go to a little bit harder rock, think like 80s, 90s, ACDC, some Metallica maybe, just, okay, I'm getting my lifting in, now it's time to do a workout. And anybody that's been worked out with me in my gym, you know it's gonna be rip your face off, metal, like hardcore metal. And then as soon as the workout is over, worship. Back in the 90s, there was this huge movement. When I first came into the church, for all you youngins in here, we used to have these things called CDs, <laughs> compact discs. And there was this thing when I first came into the church where people were like talking about throwing all their CDs away. I was like, what is going on? Why are people throwing away their CDs? But listen, we mock that now. Here, here's what I, I think the point that needs to be made is we are fooling ourselves if we don't realize that the theater, the social media feed, and the music is shaping our souls and our thought life. And I think Christians above all else, if we call him king and he said, love me with all of your mind, then we have the mandate and responsibility upon us to to take in that which is shaping our minds towards his glory. I mean, this is going to sound silly, but there are seasons where you can handle more or handle less. My wife and I just recently went through a season where we were watching Stranger Things, and literally at like episode six, both of us were like, it's just too much right now. It's just too intense. It's not fitting the narrative. It's not feeding the soul. So we quit. And then a few weeks later, things are on an uptick. We're both feeling a little bit more peaceful and hopeful. It's like, okay, let's finish it. Discern where you are right now, and could I just suggest to you, my sweet church, if you're racked with anxiety and you're overwhelmed with uncertainty and you feel frail, why don't you listen to more worship more? Why don't you just take in more of these things that will shape your soul? Number four, lovely. Moving quickly. Or number five, lovely, whichever one it is. This, weird, this word actually only appears here in the New Testament, and it's actually not found in any of the contemporary lists in the Greek corpus of, of antiquity. That's all the books that you can read from ancient Greek literature. This, book isn't, this word isn't found anywhere, so it's a unique word. The best they can discern is that the meaning of the word is meditate on, think about that which calls forth love or something that is inspiring you to selfless goodness. This is a good way of thinking about this word. Think about selfless goodness. Think about what inspires you to love. So, I mean, basic things like sunsets and red roses. Think about those things, really, truly. Think about Top Gun, the newest Top Gun. (laughs) Let me explain why. You guys are all laughing. You guys can all make fun of Top Gun. Here is the genius of Tom Cruise. You know what he does with these movies? He gives to you a good, old-fashioned, feel-good, here's the hero, none of this complicated anti-hero story stuff. Here's the good guy. His name is Maverick. Here's the bad guy, the enemy. We're not even going to name him Russia or Afghanistan. Did you guys notice Top Gun 2? The enemy isn't even named. It's just the enemy. Genius. Genius. Why? Because you want to walk away from that movie meditating on something lovely. The good guy wins. More than ever, friends, that's what we need. Call it naive, call it not real. I'm just so done with the constant cynicism and criticism, and you're not being authentic. Well, here's something authentic. Tom Cruise wins. He's Maverick. (laughs) And look, the whole thing lightens. 
Don't you see that these simple little tricks of the trade in Christian practice change our perspectives? Now go watch the movie again. You guys will love it. Commendable. Whatever is commendable, this word has an active sense of fair-sounding and well-speaking. Meditate on what is fair-sounding and well-speaking. What is gentle? What is respectful in the words and the ways that you interact with humans? So take the political discourse of the moment and do the exact opposite of that. Think about that. How can you shape your words, your ways, to that which is commendable, that which is respectable? And then Paul caps it off with these two gigantic words, excellent and praiseworthy. Whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy. Let your minds rest on that this week. And you can decide over and over, breath by breath, to redirect the fire hose that is your monkey mind. Now, as we wrap up and come to communion, I said last week that I chose the book of Philippians for this season for both personal and cultural reasons. I am alongside a cohort of leaders up and down and across the nation now. We are convinced that God in this generation of the church is wanting to do something so deep and transformative. Sayers, again, constantly says that crisis is the precipice of renewal. We are on the edge of renewal. We are. God wants to bring his communities, you and I, to a true joy and a deep rest and a genuine peace, and that looks attractive and categorically different than what the world looks like. And so Paul, in verse 9 of the passage we read, literally says, do what I do. Imitate what I do. Practice the practices that I practice, and you will get closer to Jesus. And so if you look at Paul's life, having foc- the man had focused his thought life on the things that were true. And in the midst of all of his meditations, Old Testament and New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus, Paul is facing imminent death, He is trapped in a Roman prison under the boot of the most oppressive empire. He's writing to this fragile, fragile, tiny little church plant in the middle of this huge city, in the middle of this huge empire. And the man could write things like this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. What's happening to me is actually served to advance the gospel. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed for to me, to live as Christ, and if I die, that's gain. But one thing I do, I forget what's behind me, and I strain forward to what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. Maybe one of the most ludicrous tone-deaf commands in all of the Bible. Don't be anxious about anything. How could Paul say these things? Because his internal thought life had been redirected over and over and over and over and over and over upon that which was true and lovely and right and pure and excellent and praiseworthy. Paul's inner world was shaped by the truth of eternal life and the resurrection of Jesus and the promises of the scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this had so radically shifted him that a situation that should have been absolutely anxiety-producing and crushing and discouraging and overwhelming for Paul was now an opportunity of kingdom expansion and joyful sacrifice for the sake of others and a deep and peace-filled life to be lived in the midst of all the chaos and the panic. And this, friends, is what God has for you and I. Our salvation in Jesus is to result in our minds not taking us victim, but in us deciding to redirect and our perceptions being brought into alignment with the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Just this morning, and I've been trying to do this more and more over the last couple years, 
the colloquial constant, how you doing, to which we respond, I'm doing fine, which is code for I'm falling apart at the seams, but social conventions don't allow me to snot cry in front of you right now, so I'm going to keep it together, right? I'm doing fine, to which I try to respond, I'm blood-bought, born again, bound to an eternal king whose treasures will never be moth-eaten nor rusted. I'm good. How you doing? The king of the universe created me not as a mistake, but as a missionary for his enterprise. I choose to serve him today, and he says that he goes before me in all ways. A good shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. I'm good. Don't you see? Don't you see that these things that we say we believe, they change everything for you? And it's all this buffet that's before you this week. It is up to you, though. It is up to you. You decide where you direct your mind and where you direct your thoughts. And I will never overpromise and underdeliver. This is a struggle for the rest of our lives. Christianity is a struggle until the end. The arduous good, the climb to that which we desire the most, which for Paul was death, which was the gain of Jesus. So here's the brass tacks for this week. Number one, for you note takers, number one, what do you need to do this week? Disconnect. Disconnect. If your eye starts to twitch right now, you definitely need to disconnect. We have to actively turn from the narratives and the influences of this world that form our perceptions. Disconnect. Take time daily to disconnect. I am convinced that maybe one of the most important practices for the postmodern slash late Western modern Christian is the practice of embodied silence and stillness. We can grab coffee and discuss what I mean by that and what actually happens in the neurochemistry and what I think happens in the theology and what Jesus was doing in his times of rest and silence and solitude. We can talk through all of that. The point being this week, try to turn off your phone maybe for an entire hour. No technology, no devices. Disconnect. Number two, as you disconnect, this is the terrifying thing of entering the storm that is the modern emotional moment and the mind frame of the frenetic pace that we all keep. Discern. Where does your mind go when you finally get disconnected? And why does it go there? Write it down. Write down what you're worried about. Write down what you're obsessing about. Write down what you're fixating on. And talk to Jesus about that in a disconnected moment with rawness and honesty. I am terrified. I am terrified of everything right now. I am uncertain about everything right now. And I'm just disconnected enough to be honest with how terrified I am. Discern. And over time, as you discern, you will be able to begin to say, and now I want to redirect. Disconnect, discern, redirect. Where do you redirect to? Meat and potatoes. Scripture meditation. And here at Neighbors, we have practices not only just taking in the scriptures for our heads, but through Lectio Divina, the ancient practice of divine reading, where you slow down. You don't just read, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, and then you move on with your day. You read, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, 20 times until your brain gets it down into your body, until your theology moves that down into your body. And you'll know, I'm using the same passage that I used last week, hopefully taking us on an entire summer meditation on Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Disconnect, discern, redirect, and by redirecting, you slow down, and you let that one verse saturate your entire brain for that day, and you return to it breath by breath. And then finally, disconnect, discern, redirect, Repeat until you die. Repeat until you die. The arduous good, the climb to Christ our King. This week, the kingdom work is to be accomplished through you, with the King guiding you, with the King directing you. You will be sent this week to those who want the kingdom more than they could ever imagine. Their cry for equality and justice 
for protection for the vulnerable is the cry of the king. So go be the hands and feet of the king this week. Go and do it out of stillness. Go and do it out of joy. When somebody asks you, how are you doing? Don't just say fine. Tell them the truth. How are you doing? I'm safe. How are you doing? I'm learning to be at peace in the providence of my God. How are you doing? I'm learning to have a joy around my salvation that exceeds my wildest understandings. How are you doing? I'm trusting. How are you doing? I'm saved. I'm saved. 